Welcome back to ClimateCast, a podcast that looks at how cities around the world are addressing climate change and sustainability. Following our week-long special on the Paris Climate Accord, today we look at New York City and city officials' response to Trump's withdrawal from the agreement. I'm Tabino San. I'm Keon Monroe. And I'm Andrew Bellet. And, and this, this is ClimateCast. One of the threats New York City faces is massive flooding with increases in sea level rise projected to be about 30 inches and precipitation increasing about 13% by 2050, fortifying the island is essential to the city's future. Summers in the city will also intensify, exacerbating the urban heat island effect. The worst estimates predict an average temperature rise of 6.6 degrees Fahrenheit by the 2050s with seven heat waves per year. To tackle the few problems we've mentioned and more, every aspect of our impact on the environment needs to be explored. Following Trump's withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement, combined with the still fresh memories of Hurricane Sandy, the city of New York is taking action to address climate change in lieu of the federal government. With the support of former Mayor Bloomberg and the current administration, the city government is working on a variety of climate solutions to prepare for future disasters. So what exactly does Trump's withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord mean? It rescinds federal resources and institutional power from organizations like the Environmental Protection Agency, as well as financial support devoted to addressing the goals of the agreement. Although the agreement is non-binding, the lack of support from one of the world's largest greenhouse gas emitters weakens the effort to bring global attention to climate change issues. This agreement marks the first time in history where nearly all of the world's countries came together to commit to climate change solutions. Now, the United States stands alone as the only country that has rejected the climate pact. A large effect of the U.S. withdrawal on the success of the Paris Climate Agreement will be monetary. According to the New York Times, industrialized countries have voluntarily pledged $10.3 billion since 2013 to the Green Climate Fund, which aims to help poorer nations reduce greenhouse gas emissions and address the effects of climate change. The United States had previously pledged $3 billion to this fund. So, what is New York doing to respond to federal inaction? The day after Trump pulled out of Paris, Mayor de Blasio signed an executive order committing New York to the agreement. He made a statement that New York was still in. And in September, New York released its 1.5 degree climate action plan. It became the first city to come up with a comprehensive plan to commit to to the Paris Agreement. This plan accelerated New York's 80 by 50 plan, which was drawn up in 2014 to reduce the city's emissions by 80% by the year 2050 and identified actions that need to take place by 2020. Most of the actions outlined in the plan relate to buildings in New York, which account for 39% of greenhouse gas gas emissions. But the plan also focused on transportation, moving New Yorkers to sustainable transit. Other aspects of the plan touched on organic separation, conversion to renewable electricity, leadership and advocacy, and climate justice. In this podcast, we'll begin to break down what New York is doing to combat climate change and pave the way for other American cities in this vacuum of federal leadership. I think that there'll be little change here. It'll go up, it'll get a little cooler, it'll get a little warmer like it always has for millions of years. It'll get cooler, it'll get warmer. It's called weather. I do believe in clean. And I've, I've received, a lot of people don't know this, I've received many environmental awards, many, many environmental awards for the work I do. And I believe strongly in clean water and clean air. But I don't believe that what they say, I think it's a big scam for a lot of people to make a lot of money. So we wanted to delve deeper into New York City's plans with regards to buildings, since buildings are a clear priority and most of the city's actions revolve around building emissions. 
according to the 1.5 degree plan, 39% of the city's emissions are from buildings. So obviously improvements in this area can make a huge difference. The city wants to limit fossil fuel use for things like heating and hot water. Building owners would have flexibility in how to meet these limits, but it would certainly take large investments and retrofits on the part of building owners. The city also plans to spend $2.7 billion on retrofits for city-owned buildings and raise efficiency standards on building codes for new construction projects. We're clear about the fact that we're not waiting on President Trump and his cabinet of deniers to address this crisis. We have no such illusion. We understand it's our responsibility. We're not going to put our hand, heads in the sand. We're not going to run away from the Paris Accord. In fact, we're going to embrace it even more intensely than ever. It is a sad statement that the actions of the President of the United States are putting his own hometown at risk. But that's the truth. By stepping away from the Paris Agreement, President Trump has endangered New York City. But New York City is not going to take it lying down. We're going to take matters into our own hands. And it's important that we feel that we are fighting this crisis like our lives depend on it, because in fact they do. And that was New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio speaking in September as he announced the first citywide mandated building retrofits program. In a Skype interview, I spoke with Patrick Love, a policy advisor at the New York City Mayor's Office of Sustainability, to explain more about the city's efforts in this area. First off, thank you for having me, Keon. Very appreciate it. And what I primarily work on is buildings energy efficiency, and our office is tasked with developing the programs as well as policies that are targeted towards reducing New York City's greenhouse gas emissions 80% by 2050. And the reason that New York City, as well as dozens of other, um, hundreds of other municipalities around the world have committed to this reduction target is it's what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says that developed countries, major metropolitan areas like New York City, it's what they need to achieve in order to, avo uh, to avoid the most adverse effects of climate change. When we look at New York City's greenhouse gas emissions footprint in particular, we see that around two-thirds of it is attributable to buildings, then 30% of it is attributable to transportation, and then the rest of the portions uh, attributable to waste emissions. The majority of our programs and policies focus on building energy efficiency because it's the largest portion of our greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and then also knowing and doing analysis on New York City's historic construction as well as demolition rates, we project that 90% of the buildings that are here today uh, will still be here in, in 2050. So historically, how did this office come about? So our office was founded under the previous Mayor Bloomberg back in 2007. The origin of our, of our office was, was actually pretty interesting. So back in the early 2000s, New York City uh, was in the process of putting together an Olympic bid for 2012, which ultimately London won. So as part of that Olympic bid, the city was required to think through major infrastructure development projects in terms of housing and public transportation and land use that the city would undergo 
in order to prepare themselves for for the Olympic bid. Given that the New York City's Olympic bid wasn't successful leading into 2012, that planning process formed into a, a plan called Plan YC 2030, which was the city's first sustainability plan, and this morphed out of this NYC 2012 process. So as part of Plan YC 2030, the city broke down, and this was the first comprehensive plan really ever conducted by the city of New York that looked at sustainable land use, looked at climate, energy, air quality, water quality, housing, parks and recreation, public space, and then mapped out specifically different initiatives that the city was going to implement. So that was the origin of our office, and at that time, New York City also committed to an interim target, a short-term goal of a 30% reduction in their greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. And at that time as well, when they when the city put together its initial greenhouse gas emissions inventory, we knew that we needed to focus primarily on buildings to mitigate our greenhouse gas emissions. And so this previous mayor, Michael Bloomberg, put together this comprehensive package of legislation that is called the Greener Greater Buildings Plan. And the plan requires a couple of different things. Number one, it gives New York City the opportunity to create a New York City-specific energy code that's more stringent than New York State's for all new construction and substantial renovation. Number two, it requires all buildings greater than 50,000 square feet to benchmark their energy consumption on an annual basis and then submit that information to the city. Number three, it requires all buildings, again, greater than 50,000 square feet to conduct an energy audit every 10 years. It does not require them to act on the measures, but it requires them to actually conduct an energy audit and see what opportunities are available. Uh, And then number four, it requires all commercial tenants to install an electricity submeter that actually measures their electricity and then places the responsibility on the owner to disclose that energy information to the tenant on a monthly basis. One question I think of recently, as you know, President Trump decided to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. Mm -hmm. How do you think this will affect local resources to implement these different programs that you just mentioned, if at all? So on the the energy and climate side of things, it has not tremendously affected our office because we don't rely at all on any federal resources. So the one thing that is of concern of us is the Environmental Protection Agency's Energy Star program, and a component of that program is a software platform that they've developed called Portfolio Manager, and this is a platform that any building owner around the United States can go in and submit their information. They can submit their monthly bills. They can submit specific characteristics about their building, and what the Energy Star program does is allow them to track their information over time and then uh, gives them an Energy Star score that compares them to other building types around around the United States. So we hev- heavily rely on this platform as a means of collecting information from our from building owners, and all building owners again need to submit their energy energy information to New York City using the Energy Star Portfolio Manager platform because it's a national and internationally recognized software service. So that's one big way that the city will. We anticipate that the city will be affected under this new administration. I know the administration has specifically called out uh, the Energy Star as a program that they perhaps would want to defund. Right. Um, so that's definitely of concern to us. 
But aside from that, I think the Trump presidency and Trump's retraction from the Paris Climate Agreement has been a boon for our office and for the for the city, and specifically also other cities around the United States and other cities around around the world because of the abdication of American leadership on climate change. This prompts greater imperative for these subnational actors like cities and states to really and really aggressively move on a climate. And ultimately, cities and states are the ones that, for the most part, control their energy supply, for the most part, control their transportation networks, control how their buildings are constructed and operated, as well as control how their waste is disposed of. And just as a brief side note, I think this position that Patrick is describing is rather common. More local leaders are seeing opportunities to take the lead in fulfilling efforts of the Paris Climate Agreement. Earlier this week, President Obama spoke in Chicago where he praised city mayors as, quote, the new face of American leadership on climate change. And now back to the interview. Another thing that came to mind while you were talking about some of the building implementations that you were working on, it sounds pretty ambitious. How does your office work with people to make these things happen, and do they think that they're important? That's a great question. So generally how our office approaches policy is that there needs to be a voluntary component to some things first, and then once that voluntary component is, te- is teased out and there's proof of concept within the market, then we go and develop a policy, and by policy, usually a piece of legislation that would require buildings to do something. And then kind of the third component after that is developing programs that offer technical assistance to buildings to actually comply with those local laws that we set out. So back in 2007, when the city was launching its, um, its sustainability plan, we also launched this program called the New York City Carbon Challenge. And this was a voluntary leadership program for the city's largest energy consumers and real estate owners like universities and hospitals, commercial offices, hotels, multifamily buildings, etc. And at, at the time, the city partnered with these these large entities uh, and forged a partnership with the city government as well as with one another to commit to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions 30% over the course of 10 years. And then a, a few years later, that's when the city came out with our greener, greater buildings plan. And we pointed to a lot of these large real estate owners who are ultimately supportive of the legislation um, to the work that they've done over the course of the past few years, kind of in partnership with the city and partnership with one another. And then in 2014, when the new mayor came in, we took a look at the success in the history of the greener, greater buildings plan. And what we found within the market was that the legislation that would require benchmarking and energy audits was animating the market. We saw that more building owners were taking energy efficiency seriously, and it provided good market transparency to the extent that any building owner, prospective buyer, renter can log into a central database and actually see how much energy a building has consumed from 2012 onward. But we found that it was only 30% of the market that was actually conducting these energy audits was actually taking the recommendation off of the shelf and then implementing them. Whereas the rest of the market was just hiring at this outside engineering firm who was conducting these energy audits, but then they weren't necessarily acting on them. So to continue to push the market and motivate it to actually take these energy audit recommendations off the shelf and implement them, the city launched a program called the New York City Retrofit Accelerator. And this is a technical assistance and outreach program 
where the city has contracted with a third-party consultant that has staff to go out and talk to and talk to and interface directly with building owners to understand what their needs are, understand the state of their buildings, and then understand what energy efficiency opportunities would be the best for them, and then connect them to the right financing, incentives, rebates that are offered within the market. So the way that I would think about it is it's one-on-one, it's very customer-oriented, and has a, a process, a very tight hand-holding process where they're meeting buildings where they are and then showing them the opportunities that are available to invest in energy efficiency and ultimately yield cost savings for these building owners, which can be reinvested back into the building. Speaking of financing, could you tell me more about the Property Assessed Clean Energy Financing, also known as PACE? Absolutely. So this is something that New York City is looking into doing uh, in, or looking into enact legislation that would make us able to do this in 2018. Nothing has been publicly announced yet, but we're, at, we're ardently working on uh, putting together a piece of legislation that would uh, enable New York City to be a PACE administrator. And so property assessed clean energy financing is a financing mechanism that would allow the city, because we have bonding capacity, to issue a bond and then utilize that capital that we've raised to then give to a building owner. And then that building owner can utilize that capital for energy efficiency improvements. And then the way that that loan would be repaid back to the city, as well as the principal on the loan, would be simply through the property's tax bill. And because it's a city arrangement and the city as a a bond issuer, and we have AAA bonding capacity, because we have that capability, uh, the interest rates that we can charge are favorable. I don't think the city is keenly interested on making a tremendous amount of money out of these property owners. So, And I think our intent here is to continue to motivate the market around energy efficiency. So what we would do is give these building owners the capital raised from these bonds to complete energy efficiency, and then the, city, the, the building owner would pay back the city on very favorable interest term uh, interest rates, way more favorable than you would get within the private market from, say, a bank or some real estate organization like a community preservation corporation that's, that w- does give out favorable loans with good interest rates. But this is unique to the extent that it's very favorable interest rates. It's paid back on the tax bill. And then it's also specifically tied to the asset. So that means that that building owner takes out the, takes out that loan as part of the participation within the PACE program, makes their energy efficiency upgrades in 2017. And then 2017 through 2020, they're paying back the loan every year as just one item on their tax bill to the city. Uh, and then say in 2020, they sell that building to a new individual. So that loan is, st- is tied to the asset. It's not necessarily tied to the asset owner. So ultimately, the new individual that owns that property will have to pay. Will have to continue to pay back the loan to the city. Great. Well, I think we've learned a lot about New York City and its priority to address building sustainability. Thank you so much for being on the show with us today, Patrick. Absolutely. Thank you, Keon, and great to be here.
One question struck me. Who will be doing all this work? Does New York have the workforce available? Do they have the skills to do this kind of work? The 1.5 degree plan highlights 17,000 construction jobs that will be created, but the specifics are missing. And job creation is not a featured part of the plan. It's more of an afterthought. That said, the plan does mention that the Department of Small Business Services is working to train 3,000 workers with skills to work on some of these projects. And the NYC Cool Roofs Initiative helps job seekers learn to install energy-saving reflective rooftops. The Department of Small Business Services also wants to empower women and immigrants with these emerging job opportunities. To learn more about job creation in this space, I went to New York to speak with my friend Eric Antical, who has experience with the New York construction and development sectors and vast knowledge of employment in the city. He has worked for the Department of Small Business Services, and his current role at Non-Traditional Employment for Women is closely related to the job creation component of New York's climate change actions. Here's Eric summarizing their work, and I'm sorry if the audio is somewhat grainy. We were in a coffee shop. So Non-Traditional Employment for Women, it's a nonprofit that has a goal of getting women into the union construction industry as well as uh, utilities work, transportation, sort of other tool belt industries where women have been systematically excluded, um, which in and of itself is unethical and, and, and bad for gender equity and bad for society in general, but uh, it's especially bad because these are careers where you can make a lot of money. Um, so these are really good jobs with really good people that are trying to get into them, but obviously women still face the kinds of systemic biases that we see everywhere. Eric's impression is that with the immense need for human capital to tackle climate change, it is critical to invest in apprenticeship programs to ensure workers from all backgrounds, including women, have an opportunity to, par to participate. Here's his take. It's not, it's not the food we eat, it's not the planes we take, it's the, the emissions produced in the city, it's not the, it's not the cars or anything like that, it's the emissions of buildings. And so a lot of the building stock in New York is frankly quite old. Uh, some of it's new, um, some of it's not. And so the city's looking at you know, how do we reduce that impact uh, through you know, retrofitting these buildings, making them more efficient. So when they say, okay, we as a city, we're going to try to jumpstart whatever it is, $10 billion worth of work, $50 billion worth of work, whatever the number is, we're going to try to jumpstart this amount of retrofit work uh, on large city buildings. That work has to go to somebody, right? Uh, and right now, we don't have the skilled construction workforce to do it. So you have this immense need uh, for skilled workers where like, you really can't just pull people off the street and say, like, okay, now we're going to you know, in install some solar panels, uh, panels and we're going we're gonna to do a rainwater catchment system on the roof of this 70-story building. Like, you can't. Like, you can't just say, okay, we're going to install you know, uh, multi-flush toilets on a 70,000-square-foot uh, uh, you know, facility. It'll just, even that, and that's pretty small, you know, it would be tough. So, so you need these really skilled people, um, and really the only way you get them is through an apprenticeship program. Non-traditional employment for women has received funds from the city for green job training, so Eric understands the impact the city's response to Paris can have on its workers. Eric, discuss it with me. So, so I'll, I'll fast forward a little bit. So, so we actually we got a big chunk of money from the city to do this training. Oh, uh, so to get people ready for apprenticeships where they can kind of do that green job stuff, um, which is really exciting to us because 
We already have a lot of people that want to be electricians and want to be plumbers and want to be sheet metal workers. Uh, so sheet metal workers, they handle heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Okay. So Which is probably one of the biggest exactly. cases of, of these retrofits. Exactly. Exactly. So those are kind of the big three. Um, and so we already have people that want to do that. So it's really cool for us to be able to say, okay, like not only do you get to be a part of this trade and industry that you really want to be a part of, but we also you know, could put you to work doing some of the coolest, you know, sustainability retrofit stuff in the country. Climate change, you know, we all are going to try to reverse it, right? But reversing it requires action, which requires people, which requires jobs. So these are not jobs that just, you can, like, there are people just waiting on the bench to do them. So the whole process has to also include provisions for getting people into this work. And often, you know, it's these same people that are getting displaced, that are getting the most screwed by this whole weather phenomenon thing that you know, those are the people that need and want those jobs in the first place so you can really use it as a double edge uh, that I find very exciting and that's kind of what we're doing now so having provisions for job training and then also goals for you know if you're going to build the big U do it with people who you know live in public housing in downtown Manhattan or do it with people that live in public housing in Staten Island, you know, just a ferry ride away. Um, those are people who are hungry for jobs and they're hungry for training, but they've been systematically excluded. New York City's plan to improve emissions includes ambitious changes for existing buildings and new construction projects in the pipeline. The city is relying on building emissions improvements to meet its goal of reducing overall emissions by 80% by 2050, with many of those actions taking place by 2020. But clearly, the issue of jobs needs to be front and center. And these opportunities need to be extended to people who need them the most. New York City can be an example for the country in its approach to climate change and its commitment to the Paris Agreement. That message can ring even louder if the city can frame climate change as a boost to the economy and a job creator. The 1.5 degree plan for New York City is detailed and forward-thinking, but it doesn't focus on adaptation efforts. My colleagues have spent some time focusing on a few of the many mitigation projects, but there are far more that we haven't been able to cover in detail. Since much of the fervor for climate action in New York City comes from the fear of another Hurricane Sandy-like storm, a proposal was developed to protect the areas most affected by that storm. The Big U is a plan that directly targets the low-lying topography of the affected area and focuses on potential damage from flood water and storms. The plan adjusts to the individual needs of neighborhoods and communities and divides the area into three separate zones that can be protected individually and together. The zones are East River Park, Two Bridges in Chinatown, and the Brooklyn Bridge to the Battery. For the East River area, a bridging berm will be added to the waterfront. This strip of land will be planted with salt-tolerant plants, will be an excellent space for people, and will function as a barrier to the high sea levels that come with storm surges, as well as climate change. The two bridges and Chinatown area has an especially unique adaptation feature. To mitigate flooding, deployable walls will be attached to the underside of an elevated highway. To serve a double purpose, improved lighting and murals done by local artists will be added that will benefit and beautify the community. Third, the Brooklyn Bridge to the Battery area will also have a berm at the waterfront and will be developed to form unique landscapes. 
Some existing infrastructure will be converted into museums or facilities that will educate visitors on climate change and its impacts. Hurricane Sandy's effect was greatest on Lower Manhattan, which houses the financial district. In addition, downtown Manhattan is also home to about 95,000 low-income, disabled, and or elderly folks who were without transportation and communication when the city was hit. According to Governor Cuomo, Sandy cost New York State a total of $32 billion in damage, with $19 billion just in the city. The financial district is the center of the global economy, worth about a total of $500 billion. The proposed plan would cost an estimated $335 million, which is a fraction of the damage done from the hurricane to the city and the state, and an even smaller fraction of the worth of Wall Street. The city of New York has a $20 billion recovery and resilience capital plan that will help see this project through. In addition, $511 million had been committed from the Department of Housing and Urban Development as part of Rebuild by Design and National Disaster Resilience Competition funding. Other projects funded by these awards targeted other boroughs of the cities and its suburbs and strove to create similar pr protections from the damages of climate change. Though many projects are complete, some are ongoing, and the funding provided by the federal government may change in the future. The success of these sorts of adaptations and unique engineering solutions is at least partly contingent on the acknowledgement of climate change. Further, federal support will be necessary in places less able to finance ambitious plans. Trump's withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement won't bode well. As the climate worsens, the effectiveness of mitigation efforts, like reducing emissions, will decrease. The Big U is a plan to protect Manhattan and the world's financial institutions. We should strive for the goals outlined in the 1.5 degree plan to prevent the worst effects of climate change. But as stronger and stronger storms inevitably occur, and or if the Paris Climate Agreement fails, projects like the Big U will be our next line of defense. We should do all that we can to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. But it's important to hedge our bets with adaptation efforts. As we keep going down this road, individual cities and towns will have to protect themselves from all sorts of climate catastrophes. New York's plan is a shining example of attempting to thoroughly address the many risks. The city has the ability and resources to successfully protect itself from climate destruction. However, many developing, less wealthy cities and countries do not. This has been an episode of Climate Cast. Please remember, we are a publicly funded podcast and we depend on the generous support of our listeners. Talk to you next week.